Mark Twain famously once said, I never let my schooling get in the way of my education. Education has probably come a long way since Mark Twain's time, where he was probably beaten on the rear end with a rod if he didn't know what a passive participle was. But the truth is that, when I look back on my high school education, it seems that I did spend a lot of time learning things which would prove to be of no value whatsoever for the remainder of my existence. It wasn't like, say, the shrift, where every sentence is akin to a sagacious adage to take with you on life's journey. In high school, you have to memorize a lot of information, which then exits your brain immediately after the exam, never to return again. But one thing I had to memorize in high school has proved to be exceedingly valuable. When I was in high school, we were forced to memorize the literary devices. What is a metaphor, a simile, a symbol, an allusion, hyperbole, metonymy, personification, and everyone's favorite, onomatopoeia? As a PhD student in literature, I can say that these have proved to be enormously helpful. When I learned these literary devices as a high school student, I recall having a bit of a tricky time wrapping my head around what a metaphor and a simile were. A simile is when we compare two separate ideas using an is-like statement. Let's use the music of Simon and Garfunkel as examples. The song, Like a Bridge Over Troubled Water, is an example of simile. And friends just can't be found. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Here, Paul Simon is comparing himself to a bridge over troubled water and saying he will lie down. I guess the idea is that a bridge, if it's above a wild river, eventually will collapse. With this simile, we know that Paul Simon isn't himself the, bre the bridge. Rather, he is like the bridge. He is similar to the bridge. Another song by Simon and Garfunkel is I Am a Rock. In this song, Paul Simon sings, I am a rock, I am an island. This would be an example of metaphor, not simile. Here, Paul Simon doesn't say, I am like a rock, I am like an island. Instead, he sings, I am a rock, I am an island. Now, we know that Paul Simon isn't actually a rock or an island. Here too, he is really saying that he is like a rock or very much comparable to an island. But no sane person would actually think that you can go on a tropical vacation getaway on Paul Simon's body. Yet the question remains, why did Paul Simon write, I am a rock? Moreover, what is the difference between saying I am like a rock and I am a rock? This is the question I struggled to grasp as a high school student and which I still struggle to understand today. Isn't every metaphor really just a simile only with a bit more melodrama added to it? Obviously, saying I am a rock sounds more severe and dramatic than merely saying I am like a rock. But in both cases, we know that the speaker is not actually a piece of geological stone. So why even bother distinguishing between the two, between metaphor and simile? We have discussed the literature of Franz Kafka more than a few times on the Shrift. One innovation Kafka brought to literature was to take metaphors and make them literal. Let's take the metamorphosis as an example. In Kafka's metamorphosis, 
Gregor Samsa wakes up one morning to find himself transformed into a giant insect. In this story, Gregor Samsa has quite literally been turned into a bug. He is a giant cockroach lying in bed with thousands of little legs, a hard shell, and antennas. Previous literature before Kafka perhaps would have had a character compare himself to an insect. He would have said, I woke up this morning and I felt like a bug. My family treats me like a bug. For example, let's compare this with Dostoevsky's novella from 1864, Notes from Underground. In this novella, the protagonist, equally troubled as Gregor Samsa, writes, and I quote, I'll tell you, gentlemen, that many times I wanted to become an insect, but I was not deemed even worthy of that. Dostoevsky's protagonist, in other words, says, I was less than an insect. I wanted to be an insect. But no one reads this and thinks that the protagonist wishes he were a literal beetle crawling around on the floor. Kafka, in his literature, takes this concept one step further into absurd conclusions. The characters are not merely like animals or akin to animals. They actually are these animals. Yet, when we read The Metamorphosis, we are very quick to presume to metamorphose Gregor Samsa back into a human. We read the story and think of Gregor as a human and his bug-like shape as only a symbol and a metaphor for human problems. We think, okay, haha, I get it. Kafka's being very clever and cute here, depicting Gregor Samsa as a literal beetle, but we all know what Kafka really means. This is a story about a man who feels like a beetle, who is like a cockroach, who is a cockroach in the same way that Paul Simon is a rock. There is a certain arrogance to this approach. When we say that Gregor Samsa wasn't really a bug, but only felt like a bug, it is tantamount to saying that a story about a bug on its own terms isn't really very relevant. When we presume to say that Paul Simon isn't actually a rock, but is only akin to a rock, it is like saying that a rock is only relevant insofar as we can assign it human qualities. Now, I'm not saying that Paul Simon actually is a rock or actually is an island. We all know that he is neither of these things. My point is that we quite automatically skip the bug or the rock part only to get back to what we can ascertain about the human. Yet, meanwhile, we have left the bug and the rock in the dust, as it were. We do this because a rock, we think, is just a rock. It has no emotions, no free will, no consciousness. Sure, it's a great as a literary device to dramatize our conception of what it is to be human. But once it's served its poetic purpose, we can discard it. Indeed, when was the last time a zoologist wrote a journal article on the metamorphosis? When was the last time a geologist offered witty commentary on the song, I Am a Rock? Put another way, we ignore objects, we overlook them, we treat them as lifeless, insignificant, powerless entities. Yet, it was not always this way. Sail on, silver girl Sail on, my Your time has come to shine All your dreams are You are listening to The Shrift, episode 27, 
אחרי קידושים. It was believed that all natural beings, stones, trees, lakes, seas, had an inner spirit and energy, that a soul exists in every being, even if it is not a living being. The pre-Socratic philosophers, like Thales and Heraclitus, taught that there is a form of life in all material objects. Plato, in his famous Theory of the Forms, argued that everything, animals, humans, objects, had its ideal and perfect form in the cosmos, that there was a perfect idea of the chair, and the chair that we see is merely a reflection of that perfect form. Even more recent philosophers, like Baruch Spinoza of the 17th century, saw a life force within all matter. Now, this type of thinking can easily slide over into paganism, and the last thing I would ever want to do on the shrift is turn my listeners into pagans. First of all, I'm not trying to get smited, at least not before I get my PhD. Second, I think that seeing all objects as having a life force doesn't detract from monotheism, but rather brings us closer to it. Now, to be fair, I'm not suggesting that objects are gods and that if you pray to a rock, your dreams will come true. I know that mountains do not have brains and that rivers do not have magical powers but I am suggesting that matter should not be so glibly disregarded as just another lifeless object. We have a tendency today to go through the world and see ourselves and other humans as the important entities. Everything else is just kind of in the way. But this is a recent development. Before industrialization and the rise of individualism, there was more of an homage and respect paid to the material world. One looked at the sun and the stars as vivacious things to be feared and esteemed. Even in more recent centuries, in comparison to our own, objects were seen as more alive and personified than they are today. It used to be that when one owned a boat or a ship, one referred to it as she or her. She's a beauty, they would say. People refused to denigrate a ship to just being an object created by some engineer and carpenter, people somehow sensed that ships were more than just ships. I myself am not yet a boat owner, but I imagine I would feel awfully strange referring to my boat, if I had one, as she. Yet, even as recent as a few centuries ago, this would have felt normal. If you've ever read Herman Melville's Moby Dick, you know the kind of loving attention paid to the sea. The sea has its own personality, life force, mood swings. The sea is alive. Now, today, if you sat down a hyper-rational person, they would scoff at this metaphor and want to tame it into a simile. They would say that the sea is not really alive and its own person, it's just compa comparable to being alive, comparable to a person. Moby Dick is a realist novel. There is no suggestion that the sea has a mind of its own or has free will. It just seems to. But imagine if you were to speak with Ishmael or Captain Ahab about the sea. 
Would they put up with this argument that the sea is only like a living being rather than is a living being? And even if you could scientifically explain to them how the sea cannot possibly have a brain, would they believe you? I didn't think so either. And finally, who has more of a right to decide whether the ocean is alive? We, who have spent our entire lives on land, in shopping malls, at the library, in front of a computer screen? Or Captain Ahab and Ishmael, who have spent their lives sailing around the world? The German philosopher Martin Heidegger also wanted to change our relationship to objects in the world. In his 1950 essay, The Thing, Heidegger explores how we view mere objects. Heidegger wants to distinguish between objects and things. An object is, for us, just another piece of matter, unimportant in its own right, reducible to its component parts. A thing, by contrast, is an object with its own dignity, character, and expandability. We tend to conflate the notion of object and thing. We say, give me that thing over there, when we could just as well say, give me that object over there. No one would dispute that an object is a thing. But if you think about it, we also use thing in far more all-encompassing, aggrandizing terms than we would ever use object. If we say, she knows a thing or two about it, it means that she is well-versed and knowledgeable on the subject. If we say, he has a thing for her, it means he has a crush on her, strong feelings for her. In this sense, thing is the appropriate term, and object would not make any sense. You would never say, for example, she knows an object or two about it, or he has an object for her. Famously, in Shakespeare's Hamlet, the Danish prince says, the play's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. Here, thing is the essence, the ultimate conglomeration, the linchpin of the drama. Heidegger points out that thing is the ultimate goal of Kant's philosophy. Kant employs the term thing in itself, ding an sich, to describe reality as it really is. Thing, however, has been corrupted and degraded in recent times. Nowadays, as I mentioned, we lump it together with object. Historically, thing meant anything but an object. It was a culmination of various essences into an ultimate, well, thing. Heidegger observes that in medieval German, ding, or thing, was something powerful and even sacred. The theologian Meister Eckhart referred to God as das höchste und oberste Ding, the highest and most supreme thing. Yet today, if we referred to God as a thing, we would be accused of blasphemy. Actually, Hebrew bears this out as well. Hebrew speakers will note that the modern, world, the modern word for thing is devar. This is the same word as for speech or speaking, as in ani medaber ivrit. I speak Hebrew. This word devar is used over and over again in the Torah when God speaks to Moses. Deber Elohim el le'emor. The final book of the Torah is called Devarim, which is a collection of Moshe's speeches, and yet modern Hebrew would translate Devarim as things. To even call the book of Deuteronomy things sounds like a degradation and insult, but that is only because we have mutated the concept of things from something holy into something ordinary and scientific. For Heidegger, it used to be that everything was a thing. There were no objects. Everything had this greater essence, 
was not just a tool to be exploited by us and used up, but to be admired and appreciated in its own right. Heidegger uses the example of a clay jug. When we see a clay jug, we see it simply as lifeless matter, as a tool which we can hold and fill up with liquid. This, for Heidegger, is the scientific and physical perspective of a jug. We don't see the jug on its own terms. Rather, we reduce the jug to its component parts. Heidegger writes that, according to the scientific perspective, the jug is just a vessel filled with air. When we pour liquid into the, into the jug, the air is replaced by this liquid. This is the jug. For, for Heidegger, science robs the jug of its jugness, steals from the thing its thingness. Because a jug is more than just a piece of pottery, a jug, according to Heidegger, can hold wine, which can then be poured in celebration, or in sanctification, or in dedication. A jug, in short, is not just a jug. Or put another way, it is not just an object, but a thing, a thing radiating thingness. Ancient Judaism also views objects not on our terms, not on scientific terms, but on the terms of the thing itself. The Talmud section, Pesach 111, gives all kinds of warnings along these lines. Certain trees, fields, drinks can release demon-like spirits into the world. There is, for example, a belief in Judaism that if you walk between two palm trees while carrying water, negative energy will be released into the universe and the evil force will be awakened. Now, a scientific person would be quick to dismiss this as a mere superstition. And indeed, Maimonides, when he read about these strange prohibitions, said that they are all just metaphors and have no basis in reality. Yet, Maimonides was alone in this opinion. The remainder of the rabbis of his era continued to believe in this superstitious law from the Talmud. Now, do I think that if I walk between two palm trees carrying water, that I will have bad luck or some evil spirit will be released? No, I do not. But at the same time, I would argue that different energy is released when we walk between two palm trees as when we walk between, say, two oak trees or two pine trees. The palm trees are not just there waiting for us to walk past them and decide if they're important. The palm trees are things in their own right and carry with them their own thingness. Who am I to say what occurs on a universe-wide level when I walk past them? In the Parsha for this week, Acharei Kedoshim, the Torah discusses various laws ranging from incest to animal sacrifice to menstruation to fasting. Basically your typical run-of-the-mill Leviticus Parsha. At the end of the Parsha, God warns the Hebrews that when they come into the land of Israel, they must not do those abhorrent, disgusting things which the people they will soon be kicking out did all the time. God says that when, we, when these inhabitants did these abhorrent acts, the land became defiled. Finally, God says, quote, So let not the land vomit you out for defiling it, as it vomited out the nation that came here before you. So the land doesn't vomit you out, the Torah says. Now, can a territory vomit? Can land become nauseous and throw up? Was Gregor Samsa really a cockroach? Is Paul Simon somehow really a rock? When we read this verse in the Torah, we immediately transmute it from a metaphor into a simile. 
Of course the land isn't actually going to throw up the Hebrews. It will just be as if the land is spewing out the Hebrews, if they take on these heathen customs. But the Torah doesn't say it will be as if the land vomits out the Hebrews. It says it will. Of course, if we try to explain this scientifically, it doesn't make much sense. We know that a land doesn't have a mouth or a stomach or bile or a digestive system. But what if we were to reattach Heidegger's notion of thingness to this thing of the land of Israel? Then it may be that the land could indeed throw up the Hebrews, not figuratively, but literally. Meditation has the ability to bring us in greater contact with the world which surrounds us. Meditation allows us to realize that the world doesn't revolve around us. Rather, we are part of a vastly interconnected world in which every entity, humans, animals, plants, and even objects has its own being. Everything is a thing. A common practice of meditation is to close your eyes and become aware of the objects around you. Even though your eyes are closed, you can still sense the objects in the room. You can sense their energy and their being even without seeing them or touching them. You know how far away they are from you, the pressure they're exerting on you, where they're located. Indeed, if you think about it, this is a phenomenon we experience all the time. As one example, have you ever left the dishes in the sink without cleaning them and then gone into the next room? Even though you can't see the dishes and they are out of your way, you can still sense them. Somehow, you feel less at ease, as, even, as though even the next room you're in is also unclean because of the dishes still waiting in the sink. It's important to be aware of the energy being emitted from all objects in our surroundings and how this energy is affecting us. The Parsha also discusses the fasting holiday Yom Kippur. The Torah tells us how on the 10th day of the seventh month, we must afflict ourselves and abstain from work and creative activity. On this day, Aaron, the high priest, will be responsible for offering two goats by way of sacrifice. One goat Aaron will sacrifice in the temple to God in the usual way. But then there is a second goat. This goat is not to be sacrificed. Rather, Aaron will send this goat into the wilderness carrying upon it the sins of Israel. There is more. This goat will be sent to Azazel. What? Azazel? Yes, Azazel. Who is Azazel? We haven't heard of him or her or it before. The Torah does not explain who or what Azazel is, but he is generally thought to be a fallen angel or a forest demon. Also, as a side note, we get the term scapegoat from this goat sent to Azazel. All the sins of the community were laid on the head of this one goat. Every year on Yom Kippur, we read several times about Azazel, and of course we read about him in this week's Parsha. Yet, I don't hear many Jews talking about Azazel so often. When Azazel does come up in enlightened Jewish circles today, it is once again brought down to the symbolic. There was no forest demon. This was just a kind of rite or custom to allow the ancient Israelites to ceremoniously relinquish their sins of the past year. Azazel has become, for Jews, a symbol, a simile, a poetic idea. Yet, there is just one problem with this castration of Azazel, with the surgical removal 
of the thingness from this thing. The problem is this. No one ever asked Azazel what he thinks about it. Scarborough Fair Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme Remember me to one who lives there She once was a true love of Once was a true 